pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us this morning? Give us humble and open hearts and minds to receive whatever your spirit may want to communicate to us. Whatever it is we're going through, our struggles, our joys, our distractions, Lord, let us be open and willing and eager to hear from your word that we might be changed to be more like Christ. Lord, encourage and equip us in all areas of life to live kingdom first every day of every week of every year. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. My kids, as I would imagine probably all of your kids, they sometimes say the weirdest things to the point that I don't even always, like sometimes they'll say it and I just keep going. Like it's not even worth asking, what, what are you saying? Because it's so off the wall. But occasionally they say something and I think, what? All right, I got to know what they mean. And occasionally, they actually mean something. There's something that I heard that is quite different than what they meant. This happened last week. I had just tucked in my four-year-old, prayed with him, said goodnight, walked to his door. I'm stepping out, and I say, goodnight, buddy. I love you. I'll see you in the morning. And he says, Daddy, now, my first thought is, all right, what's he going to do to extend this? How's he going to stall so he doesn't go to sleep? And he says this, Daddy, I hope I have a birthday after I die. <laughs> what? And, and I, I, I almost thought, did I, did I hear that? That is the, he's four. Like, that is such a bizarre thing to say. Like, what is he talking about? I'm like, and this one was when I didn't let it go. I'm like, all right, it's got death in it, so I at least should address this with my four-year-old. I said, buddy, what, what do you mean? You want a birthday after you die? And he said, well, I, I want to be like Martin Luther. He's dead, and we just celebrated his birthday. Wow. <laughs> I was not there. Um, I was way over here, and he was way over there. But he was actually saying something that to some degree made sense. It's just, I was not thinking that way. Now, that happens quite a bit um, with my kids. There's a number of things they say that like, I'm, I'm over here, they're over there. But usually, those type of mistranslations, they don't necessarily change lives. Um, it doesn't, it's not a huge impact. Uh, it's, it's funny, it's different, it's annoying sometimes. It doesn't change lives. But sometimes, sometimes there's things that are not translated. There is a Japanese word that I'm going to butcher, because right, I don't speak Japanese. Um, it's manta suksi or something like that. Starts with an M, it ends with a U. Right? It's got a couple of syllables in it. That word in Japanese has more than one meaning, much like a lot of our English words do. It's got both, it's kind of denotative, this is what it means, it's got connotative meanings to it, it means a number of things. 
One of the things it can mean is basically the equivalent of kind of no comment, um, at least not yet, still thinking, that kind of thing. But it can also mean something much more drastic, like that's not even worth responding to. I have nothing to say about that because it's not even worth responding to. That word may have, and I read a number of sources on this because it's so extreme, I almost couldn't believe it. But that word may have been one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. That word. Because in 1945, in Potsdam, they came up with, these are what you must do. These are our terms. And they gave it to the Japanese. And the ruler at the time, Kantaro Suzuki, again, butcher that name too. They weren't ready. They didn't know what the response was going to be. And he used that word as part of it. Almost like a political term just to say, well, we're not ready yet to make a decision. However, the translation came across as we're not even going to respond to that. That's not even worth our time. And 10 days later, they made the decision to drop the bomb. That, if true, and again, multiple sources have this. There's even one thing I read that was declassified. That was a catastrophic miscommunication, mistranslation. Something that, what if it hadn't gone that way? Think of the, at least potentially, potentially. What if they just surrendered? All of the lives that wouldn't have been lost, all of the infrastructure that wouldn't have been destroyed, all of it, because of a misinterpretation. Sometimes it's not like my kid, where it's just, it's funny, you laugh at it. Sometimes it has real consequences. It can be costly. This morning, I want to talk about some mistranslations. I want to talk about some things that I know from my background, and you may not share this, although I know some of you do, because some of you come out of my background. I come out of an evangelical Bible church background. Baptist, non-denominational, all of it. If you come out of that background or have any connection to that background, you may share what I think are misinterpretations that are quite costly. Mark your Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. We're gonna look this morning at the very first thing that Jesus did when he began his public ministry. I mean, this is huge. Jesus has spent 30 years getting ready for this. He's been baptized, he's gone into the wilderness, and now he is starting his public ministry. And this is what happens. And what he preaches right here is in all of the Gospels, and it's the summary of what Jesus was doing as he went around preaching. This seems to be his primary message. And I want to argue this morning 
that we've missed a huge part of it. That our understanding of it is a sliver of what he intended. And that I spent most of my Christian life in that sliver. Mark chapter one, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, he had to be off the scene. He's the opening act, he's the forerunner to Messiah. He's arrested, or interesting word that Mark used, he's given over. It's the same word that Jesus will describe of himself when he describes being handed over. John was handed over. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Word number one that I think we misinterpret, gospel. Gospel. Let me tell you what I hear that word being used as quite often. Tell me, and it may relate to your experience, it may not. Sometimes that word is really generic. We talk about, I preach the gospel, and it pretty much means I taught out of the word of God. That's all it is. He was preaching the gospel today. Sometimes, and probably quite often, that word is very specifically connected to this message, and this is my college experience. Right? This is the gospel. I am a sinner. My sin separates me from God. I've missed the mark. And my sin, the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God sent his son to die on my behalf, and if I will believe in him, I will have salvation and I will go to heaven to be with God. That that is the gospel. Now, we got a mm-hmm back here. I bet there's some others mm-hmms. You just don't mm-hmm as much. Right? I mean, that, 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 that's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. And, and yet, number one, he doesn't say any of those words in this. None of them. And number two, there is nothing in that whole thing that we did, and I was trained. I mean, I had all the Romans passages and everything because we were gonna go door to door and talk to people. Door to door in our dorms, door to door in neighborhoods. Not once did my gospel message have the word kingdom in it. So filled the kingdom of God is at hand. How, how can it be that whatever our gospel message is, we don't have the primary thing he's preaching in it? What are we missing? And now, I don't want to, hear me out, please. The gospel absolutely includes the message of salvation as many of us understand it. However, it's so much bigger than that. And that's where I think our misinterpretation comes. And we end up missing what he's preaching here. All right, the word gospel. Here's what they would have heard. Right, it means good news, and many of you probably know that. In fact, a better translation, just so we get it, might be, Proclaiming the good news of God. This is good news, whatever he's talking about. And what they would have heard, because what the word was typically used for, when you came back victorious from battle, you had good news. You were the victor. You brought salvation, not you know, going to heaven, that kind of thing. But you saved the people. 
You saved your land, your town, your city, your kingdom. It was good news. When Caesar was born, the gospel was proclaimed, the good news of his birth, because he was the savior of the world. At least that's how he's viewed. So you have this idea that somebody is coming and there's a victory that is behind it. And so it's really good because there's victory. You've won. Here's the good news of God. So what is that good news? That good news is it's finally here. It's finally here. The time is finally here. Again, they are not hearing. I have sinned and I've been separated from God Because of that, I'm gonna die, but Jesus came and died for me, and if I believe in him, I'll go to heaven. That's not what they're hearing. Hear them? That's what they're hearing for. Since the Babylonians came in and sacked Jerusalem, the temple's destroyed, and the presence of God leaves, the Shekinah glory, as it's called in the Old Testament, leaves. They have been praying. Every generation has been praying for Yahweh to come back. For Yahweh to fulfill his promises. All these things said in the Old Testament. That he would come back with his promises and his power. That the plans he had would be done. That he'd be present with his people again. And every generation was seeking this. And praying and praying and praying. And here comes Jesus on the scene. And he says to a bunch of Galileans, it's here. The time's here, it's now. Yahweh is coming back. The kingdom of God is here. What they would have heard is something along these lines. All the promises of the Old Testament, they're real. I know for generations we've been wondering. I know for generations we've been clutching and holding on and hoping. But they're real. The promises are real. And not only that, the power of God, it's here, it's coming right now. It's gonna work, and you see this in the ministry of Jesus. As he casts out demons, he's overcoming darkness. As he heals people of diseases. As he changes and transforms lives. As he talks to people that nobody else would talk to, sinners. And he touches them and he invites them in and he gives them a healing. That's the power of the kingdom. And that is the plan of God to sum up all things in Jesus Christ to redeem, to make new all things. And so here he comes with good news. Why is it so good? Just think about it, church. The promises of God are real. The power of God is real. The plan of God, and you're a part of it, is real. This is good news. God's victory is being brought to the earth and we are part of it. The Olympics are starting soon. Winter Olympics, February. We're excited because at least my wife and I and my daughter slowly is becoming more and more, we like the Olympics. Uh, we, don't watch as nearly, we don't watch nearly as much of it as I think we want to because there's not enough time, but we think about it a lot. And we record a lot of it and then end up just erasing it because we don't have time to watch it. But we love the Olympics. Last Olympics. And we love gymnastics. Gymnastics are awesome. They do all kinds of great things. But swimming ended up becoming one of our favorite things. 
did you know that in 1984, I think is when it ended, they had a swimming event they no longer have called Solo Synchronized Swimming. How's that for a good event? Solo Synchronized Swimming. Now, they synchronized with music. That's what, but it, didn't that sound just so awkward? We really enjoyed swimming. We enjoyed the, like, just rooting and watching them go. And we're like, oh, he's almost there, he's almost there. And we're like, it's so excited. And one of the times when we were watching this, I noticed something. There's this dude sitting in the corner by the pool on a chair. He's a lifeguard. And I thought, he's a lifeguard for Olympic swimmers. What kind of job is that? And, and I and imagine this guy, he's like, he's sitting there, and he's, he's like looking at all these people. Hey, Michael. Something happens, I got you. I'll dive in there and rescue you. You know, hey, Ledecky, I've got my flotation device here. <laughs> hey, something goes wrong, I'll save you. I, just, I think I'd feel like a total moron. I'm like, here I am, I've got my certificate from the YMCA <laughs> and my flotation device, and I'm going to rescue the Olympic swimmers when they go down. Um, but you know what? I kind of think that that is a little of how we live the Christian life. God is doing something in his kingdom. His plan, his promises, his power. And we're holding on to our little flotation devices and we're like, okay, we got this. We can do this. We're relying on the kingdom of me instead of the kingdom of God. And I tell you something, if you are like me and you have moments where you are overwhelmed by stress. It is at least partly because you're trusting the kingdom of me instead of the kingdom of God. Because you're looking to your plan and your power and whatever promises you hope you can make happen. Because here we are, right in front of us is God doing his thing. The kingdom of God at hand. And yet, we're still trying to hold on because it's easier and safer to do so. I know because I keep doing it. And I imagine you're probably with me in this. And yet, you know what that means? He says this is good news. You know what that means? I am not here to give you one more thing to do. It's not another list. I don't have 10 more commandments to add. Like there weren't enough, so here's a few more. Good luck. I'm not here to give you more guilt. Here's here's another list. If you just check these boxes, things will be good. No, this is good news that God's kingdom could be the center of your existence instead of the kingdom of me and that all of the promises of God and the power of God and the plan of God could be what your life is centered in. How? How does that happen? Look back. Here's what he says. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe. And again, these are two words I'm not sure we quite get. Because I think, and again, tell me, you know, maybe this isn't your experience, but it's mine. 
This is repentance. I feel really awful about doing a bad thing. I'm so sorry, God. I did it again. I feel awful and terrible. And then, and again, it might just be me, not you. I start to make a deal with God. I'll never do that again if you just. And that's what I think is repentance. And belief, I think belief, while we wouldn't say this, I think it's the way we work it out. It's intellectual assent to certain facts. All right, Jesus is Lord. Yes, I believe that. I don't live like that, but I believe that. I want to give you two different ways of looking at these words that are much more, again, what they would have heard. Repent means to turn. And it is turning from one thing to another thing. When we repent of sin, yes, it absolutely can involve us feeling awful about a sin. There's nothing wrong with that. It's wrong. It's an affront to God. However, if that's all we do, we're not repenting. We're apologizing. We're feeling guilty. Repenting is when we go, God, I have messed up, and I'm turning from that to you. I'm turning away. Repentance can actually be used for all kinds of things. If you go from one political party to another, technically that's repenting. And depending on which party you're in, or what you, that, you would believe that. Turning from one thing to But you can repent from all kinds of things because you're turning from one thing to another. Repentance here is turning from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God. And the belief translated as trust because it's an active thing. In fact, I can trust without fully believing the way we use belief. I can trust God even if I have doubts. Even if I'm not 100% sure that he's gonna do all the right things or do the things I want or whatever, I can still trust him. I would say most of our trust in this life is not based on 100% certainty. There's things we know that can go wrong, but we still trust. This is a turn from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God and trust that. It is exactly what the disciples do in the next section. Right? Just read with me. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Notice what he calls them. They were fishermen. That's who they are. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed after him. And here's what I want to say. Most likely, if you include all the Gospels together, This is not the first encounter Jesus has had with these guys. What we studied last week in John has already happened. Here's what they've done, probably, at least some of them. They have already come up and talked to Jesus. They have heard him say things, teach things. They have walked with him a certain amount to, to Galilee. They've watched him call another disciple. They've seen him do a number of things already. But what are they doing afterwards? They are back to being fishermen. Here's what I would argue. They were doing Jesus' things, but he wanted them to be Jesus' people. They were do- I'm not Christian things, but Jesus says the good news is so much more than that. I'm not offering you things to do. 
I'm not just saying go be a moral person. I want that. But oh my goodness, the big news is the good news is so much bigger than that. You think it's just a list? Like go do these things. No. I am giving you the opportunity to turn from a trust in your purposes, your plans, your power, your ways to mine to trust in it and rely on it and let it be how you live your life. And that's what happens when they're out in that boat and he comes and he says, drop everything and come. And they go, we got it. We're dropping this and we're following you. We're gonna see life through the kingdom. Last year in the Olympics, in the 5,000 meter women's semifinal, 3,000 meters in. Oh, I just forgot her name. Oh, that's terrible. Nikki. Dang it. Nikki. I'll get it at some point. Nikki tripped. Hampton? Oh. Nikki tripped. Fell. And you know what happens if you're in a big pile and you fall, right? Runners are scattering everywhere. At least one other runner also fell. Her name is Abby Diastino, and she fell, and she hit the ground. And she lifted her head up. She looks for a moment on this video, and then she goes back to Nikki. And she says to her, get up. This is the Olympics. You have to finish. And she helps this lady up, and then they go together and finish. Now, that's a beautiful scene until you recognize what she gave up. She spent, Abby, she spent probably more than half of her life training for this because Olympic athletes begin really young. You don't get to the Olympics on accident. Getting ready, moving. They spend tons of money for training, getting ready, moving into the Olympics. She just sacrificed, and this is semi-final, by the way. If she had gotten far enough, she's going for gold, okay? She gave that up to help somebody else. Her coach had told her, if you ever fall, immediately get up, see where the pack is, and go. Instead, she got up and ran to somebody else who needed help and helped her up and sacrificed her own chance Here's what she said afterwards. Although my actions were instinctual at that moment, the only way I can and have rationalized it is that God prepared my heart to respond that way. This whole time, he's made it clear to me that my experience in Rio was going to be about more than my race performance. And as soon as Nikki got up, I knew that was it. The Olympics were about more than the Olympics because she was seeing everything through the kingdom. That's the call. Drop the nets. Let the kingdom be the thing that your life is centered on. Turn from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God. And let that rule everything you're doing.
Let that be your strength. Let that be your plans. Let, that, let those promises hold you up instead of relying on the kingdom of me. That's what she did. And I think far too often we live in between. Hear me out. It's not so much that we completely ignore the kingdom of God. It's that we got kind of a foot in the kingdom of me and a foot in the kingdom of God. And we're not really getting the full benefit of either one. We're getting the stress of everything weighing on us, but we're not getting all the benefits of just living life selfishly for me. We're standing straddling the two kingdoms. It reminds me of, we have two school zones that we have to go through to get our kids to school every morning. And I see this all the time. You're right around that moment when the school zone's gonna start. Like it's, and so people are, and so like it's 829. And so people are going, I'm not kidding you, 10 miles an hour over the school speed limits and 10 miles an hour under the actual speed limit. As if, well, I don't know if it's a speed limit yet, so I'm gonna slow down. Do you know you're still gonna get a ticket? Like the cop's not gonna go, well, okay, well, they're trying. <laughs> like pick one or the other. It's either school zone or it's not. Like go the 25 or go the 45, get there or watch out for children. But don't go in between. And I think that's so often what we're doing. We're afraid. We're afraid to take that foot and just go, I'm tired of the kingdom of me. And I'm gonna step fully into the kingdom of God. And I'm gonna trust his power and his plan and his promises. There's an alert. It's God saying, please, come over to my kingdom. You've spent enough time in your own. Church, he is still calling. He's still saying, follow me. Follow me fully. Step out of whatever boat you're in. Drop those nets. Follow me fully. You know, Misunderstandings can be costly. In 2009, there's a World Bank called HSBC Bank, and they did this massive promotions program. The slogan was, assume nothing. They wanted to be seen as a bank that was different. You know, don't assume all the things you normally think of when you think of banks. Assume nothing, because we are not like other banks. Unfortunately, in multiple countries. That translation didn't come out assume nothing. It came out do nothing. <laughs> do nothing. It cost them $10 million because they had to completely redo, completely rebrand after this went out. I say this in all humility on the very narrow gospel 
that so many of us have lived with for a very long time, it is essentially a do-nothing gospel. As long as I put my faith in Jesus, so much more things good. And yet God has so much more. The kingdom of God is not a do-nothing. It's a he's done everything, get on board. He's still working and we get to be with him. The good news is God is active and he invites his people to be a part of what he's doing with his promises, his power, and his plan. Let's join him. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kingdom, that you kept your promises, that you've been working in your power and fulfilling your plan. Lord, thank you that you have called us to be a part of it. Lord, help us to repent of the kingdom of me and turn fully trusting in your kingdom, that we can be different people, that we can be kingdom people, Jesus people, and we can bring your word and your love to a world that so desperately needs us. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.